Good morning. I know we just, we just finished a series and then all of you are saying, when are we gonna get back to the Gospel of Luke? We've got like at least four years left of that thing and here we are, just another knockoff, just a, a one-off sermon here. Um, no, if you, if you don't know, my name's, Pat, my name's Dale, I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer and you might not know or you might that you've actually walked into Redeemer Church on what is internationally known as Orphan Sunday or Stand Sunday, which is a time when churches, not only across America, but across the world, uh, give a little bit of a particular emphasis, an extra focus on the care for the needy, the care for those sort of the pure and undefiled religion, which is the caring for the widows and the orphans uh, that the, you know, the letter of James tells us about. So we've walked in on that this morning. Surprise, you're here. It's too late now. But um, we've got, uh, in these last couple of weeks, we've seen from great sermons from Pastor Lawson and Kevin about the story, the unfolding narrative of the uh, story of God's grace from the beginning to the end, right? We call that, that, that from the Garden to the Glory series. And when even in thinking about that, in trying to plan for what we can talk about here today as a church, one of the things uh, to consider is We've now seen that story. We've seen where it began. We've seen how, it's, how it will end. But we have to ask ourselves, well, where are we in it, right? Because we're now here, the church. We're now gathered. And Christ has died. Christ has risen. We say Christ will come again. So we are stuck in that, in that period of time between when we know he's going to come back and when he, we know that he was already here. So... That it, we, the big, you, where are we? You are here, question mark of church history demands, well, what are we doing here? Why are we here? So we have seen already the innocence of the Garden of Eden, right? And we saw it defiled. And then we saw God's continued restorative plan to make all things new again, to bring them back. And in that, particularly, we saw God had this desire to make a people that were his, that would be separated from the rest of the world uh, because he planned for them to be different. As different as a sheep and a goat between these two, these two kinds of people to follow his will, to obey his commands, to showcase his mercy and power. And at the same time, on the other side of that, we see our ability as human beings to completely fail at keeping that covenant as long as any part of it is contingent upon our own faithfulness to the Lord. If, if it demands our righteousness, every time the righteousness, we would, we would not lift it up. Uh, God established a kingdom. He would then have to winnow it down to a smaller, hopefully more faithful, more righteous uh, sub-portion of that kingdom. And it would always work for a time period. But then as time goes, just like just add water, just add time, that kingdom that was more righteous designed to be the faithful, holy remnant would again become defiled. And for thousands of years, that pattern persisted, right? We saw that in the kingdom of Israel. We saw that before that in the time of Noah. We saw that in the time of Cain and Abel. We saw that in the garden. Holiness that sin entered and then broke it. And so it persisted. And at the time that the, before Christ came immediately, there was nothing that the Jews, the faithful Jews that were still around knew was going to necessarily happen 
to atone for them permanently. They had a hope that God might step in in some unforeseen way. But as far as what they have seen in the past, that hope is just, Lord, do something. God, do something. We have nothing to offer. And then, big bright light in the period of church history, Christ came. And in his coming, he recategorized everything. He brought hope. He brought power, the kind that, that we only read about almost in just fantasy novels. Jesus showed up and his power proclaimed his authority. He had authority that nobody could understand. They say this guy comes in and he preaches from scripture like he, like he was there when it was written. He preaches about it like he knows why it's there. And for all of these things, he was viewed, among other things, as a potential ascendant political ruler and a revolutionizer and a king in the making. Those are all, like, Jesus didn't have any kind of ambition in the same way that we might define ambition, where it's like, watch out for that Jesus guy. He's really, he's really something else. I think, he's got, I think he's got plans. No, Jesus was living out the Father's will in his life, and it just brought more and more attention and it also started threatening everyone that held power at the time, from the Pharisees of the, of, of the Jews in Israel to the actual Roman authorities that were over that time. You might remember that actually at the first calling again that the Pharisee had against Jesus was claims of blasphemy. Claims that he is making himself out to be God or to, out to be something he is not, and therefore that's why we need to put the clamp on this as quickly as possible. But... That's not actually what they're able to bring to Rome because Pilate looks at it and he goes, figure this out amongst yourselves. This got, that doesn't have anything to do with me. So what do the Pharisees have to pin on him? They have to pin on him that actually, no, they have to lie. They have to say, he's actually raising up a nation and he says that they don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, something Jesus never said. But the Pharisees have to lie about it because the way they get Rome to be concerned with Jesus is to say that he's coming to take over your kingdom, so now you need to care about it. And then he's crucified in what was an apparent victory for the establishment rulers. Don't forget that. No, the disciples do not know what's happening. They know that he's crucified and that he's submitted to humiliation and death. And then for the briefest of time periods, hope is gone. Not even a little. I mean, like, like, like we, we can read back into it and we go, oh, you know, it was only a couple days. They should, they should have seen it coming. No, they don't know what he meant when he said he's gonna tear the kingdom down and rebuild it in three days. They don't know what that means. They're despondent. And then, in a very subtle way, there were rumors of a missing body that were being spread among the Jews and among the people of Jerusalem. And it was not respectable at first. You probably only read about it in the tabloids at first, but people were saying the body of Jesus is no longer in the tomb and the Romans don't know where it is. And then you'd have to hear it from a couple people that maybe you don't really trust exactly what they saw, but they come out and they say, no, 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 I saw something. I've been at the tomb. He wasn't there, I promise. And then you keep listening and listening and then you hear more and more and more. Then you hear about people that you actually do trust that have seen him. And then over the course of 40 days from the time of Jesus' resurrection to the time of his ascension, more and more people see him and the rumors stack up to the point where everybody just says, it's true. He came back. He is here. He was crucified and now he has risen again. And anybody directly responsible for his death must have been terrified. 
We killed this guy, we can't keep him down. Pausing the story though, also anybody that was following Jesus at this time would be completely certain that his next move would be to actually overthrow the rulers of the world, the ones who thought they were so right just a little bit ago, and that the inauguration of the king of all kings would begin. That that is what is coming next. He is invincible, he's literally unkillable, he's at the height of his influence and power. Whatever supernatural powers he had before, they're nothing now. I mean, you literally can't keep them down. And then if you saw Jesus at that point, you might ask him the same way his disciples asked him in the book of Acts. The last question that they ask him while he's here on earth, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel now? And they ask that question. And then after that question, he leaves. He literally flies away like 30 seconds later. And the disciples are just left there on the side of the road, kind of looking like losers. And he just tells them, wait for the Holy Spirit. And then that's, 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 their part, that's his parting words to them. And you're going, you were it. We thought that you were it. You're the one that we're following. And what are we waiting for now? And then a couple of angels show up and they say, stop staring in the sky. I don't know if Jesus left through the sky, I'd probably be staring at it for a while too. But they say, stop staring at the sky. They're almost as rudderless as they were 40 days ago, but now they've got more questions. That takes us to today, actually, give or take like 2,000 years. Uh, but we, like Jesus's immediate disciples at that time period, are still wondering, when's he gonna come again? We're wondering when the king in whom we've placed our faith is going to establish his kingship forever. In the church age of history, much of what our forebears in the Old Testament were waiting for has already been revealed to us. And I'm reiterating this for a point. The fact that Christ came to earth and accomplished all of the work of salvation, and we are told is now seated at the right hand of the Father, and we believe is now seated at the right hand of the Father, begs the same question every day that we wake up. Why is the work not over yet? What, what other shoe needs to drop? Every morning that we go to work or go to school or raise our children or bury our parents or eat or drink or live or die, every time we gather together, even when it's for a good purpose, when it's for Thanksgiving in a week and a half, when we gather together, it begs the question, Lord, where are you? And every tragedy, birth, death, cancer, every set of parents that long for children but don't get them, or every child that has no parents, ask the same question. When, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to do it now? And so John Bright, who is a biblical scholar, he argues that the kingdom of God is the central underlying theme of the whole Bible. Now we know, we know Christ is the central figure of the whole Bible. These two statements are not at odds. Christ is the central figure, but he, he would say that if the Bible was one book and we were to give it a title, a just title might be the book of the coming kingdom of God. And even though we don't speak in kingdom language very often, the promises of what the kingdom is and when it is coming are a major concern to us because of all those questions that we just asked. Whatever it is, our hope and goal is to be a part of it when it's here. So, 
We have seen, uh, even in the scripture that we just saw, the Lord is coming back to establish a kingdom. We as the church, we aim to make a world ready for that kingdom and to show practically the character of the king himself and the hope that he gives. And we're gonna ask that question, Lord, when will the kingdom come? And why is it not here yet? So before we start in earnest, let's pray and then we'll continue on. Lord, I pray that your presence be here this morning, that the spirit would come into Redeemer and do things that only the spirit can do, that for the hearts of everybody in this room, the ones that put their faith in you a long time ago or the ones that don't know what they believe about you, to the ones that are hostile against you, may your will be known here. Help us to see things and truths about you that we haven't seen before. Pray that you'd reveal that to us in your mercy and in your kindness because you are a, a God of great love, abounding in steadfast love. And then pray for yourselves. Pray that the Lord would work in your lives however he would like to. And then pray for me. Just pray that my words would make sense, that they would be, uh, they'd give glory and honor to God. Well, Lord, we love you and we trust you. We ask you for this time to make yourself known. It's in Christ's name, amen. We're gonna kind of break this up, uh, our description of the kingdom. Uh, what you'll see often in scripture is that God uses the image of a tree to describe not only the kingdom of God, but also just kingdoms in general. And so we're gonna go a little bit with that, which is we're gonna look first at the roots of the kingdom, how the kingdom is meant to be a blessing to the world. We're gonna look kind of at the central part of the kingdom. Uh, we're gonna get to talk a little bit about Jesus then and what he did when he was here and how he manifested himself as an example to us. And then we're gonna talk about the branches of the kingdom, which is what I'd say is where we are now as a body of believers on the planet. But start, we'll start with the roots of the kingdom, a blessing to a broken world. And there are a lot of descriptions in the New Testament about what the kingdom of God is. More than 70 alone in the New Testament, not even counting anything in the Old Testament. And we are told at different times that the kingdom of God is, follow me here, like a mustard seed, like leaven used to bake bread, like a treasure hidden in a field, like a pearl, like a net used thrown in for gathering fish. And those are just the gospel of Matthew. That's like one tiny little window. And that doesn't even include some of the other larger abstractions of what the kingdom of God is, such that it belongs to the poor or that it's impossible for us to say it's here or that it's there or to know exactly where it is in certain forms. If we were to try and describe something in abstract ways, it's, we're trying to get to the heart of an issue. If I were to, and this is a terrible point of comparison, but if I were to try to describe the kingdom of Texas to somebody who is uninitiated, I might start with some 
similar things. I could, I could start, I could tell them if you wanted that Texas was, was brought into the Union in 1845 after previously belonging to Mexico and Spain uh, and that its southern border is the Rio Grande and that its northern border is the Red River. And you would go, okay, those are facts. So then I might have to say, okay, I need something else to really get the point across. Maybe that's not doing it. So I'd probably say, to what shall we liken Texas? Texas is like a brisket, Smoked for the better part of 18 hours until you don't even need a fork to eat it. Texas is like sweet tea of such a high sugar content that it could be interchangeably used as either a lunchtime beverage or food for hummingbirds. <laughs> Texas is a land where the Friday night lights of our football stadiums, if combined, could illumine the total square footage of several smaller nations on the planet. Smaller, certainly, than Texas, because if there's one thing we know about Texas, it's that Texas is big. Texas is so large that if you drive into Texas from Louisiana, for no reason at all, you will see a sign that tells you how far El Paso is from you, more than 830 miles, not because anyone drives from Louisiana to El Paso, but because we didn't want you to forget that that's how far El Paso is from you. At some point, though, those abstractions kind of get to something, but if you really wanted to know at the heart what is the umbrella over all of those things, you might need to go to something like the founders of Texas to see why all of those things are somehow subordinate to some other greater idea. So then we can go, well, what did Sam Houston, one of the founders of Texas, what did he have to say about Texas? Well, this, this was his rallying cry at the Battle of San Jacinto right before the revolution was over. He said... We must now act or abandon all hope, rally to the standard, and be no longer the scoff of mercenary tongues. Be men, be free men, that your children may bless their father's name. That tells you then, freedom, freedom, that's something that you can build a kingdom on. That's a concept large enough to say, okay, we can put some other things under that. Brisket falls under freedom, just so that we know. Freedom is the umbrella, brisket's below it. Likewise, to understand the role of the kingdom of God, we have to go to God's words when it was formed so that we can get at what his heart for the kingdom was. Because why did God desire to create a people from himself, for, for himself? That's a real question. Why create a community at all? He's not man such that he can't deal with all humans at the same time, so he just wanted to deal with one subsection of humans. Was he bored? Was he lonely? We don't believe that. We believe a God who is completely and wholly perfect unto himself. Was it so that he could call one set of people righteous and another set of people unrighteous? He just wanted to make that distinction? I think if we're not careful, we might feel that way, but that's not true, because what do we know about Abram? Abram had nothing in him that, that set him apart from the nations that he was in. The reason Abram became Abraham was because God called him, and no other reason. So God called people out. He called them out in what, from our standpoint, what almost looks arbitrarily. Here's my nation. It's my nation because I say it is. But if we go all the way back to the promise he gave to Abram, Back in Genesis, what did he say about this coming kingdom? The Lord said to Abram, go from your land, your relatives, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you. I will curse anyone who treats you with contempt. And out of all the peoples on earth, and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And if you're like me, you might find that interesting because I don't, it doesn't often come to my mind when I think of the foundations of what would become the nation of Israel and what would become the lineage of Christ, that part of God's very first covenant with Abraham was that he said a primary reason that this nation would exist is to be a blessing to all the peoples on the earth. It was baked into the very beginning. I'm calling you out as my people. You're leaving behind your gods that you worshiped before. You will worship me and you will be a blessing to everyone. And when we see that, we often say, and understandably so through the lens of the modern church, well, yeah, didn't God do that when eventually through Abraham, eventually through David, eventually through the kingdom of Israel, the Messiah came and then all earth was blessed through Jesus. And we say, of course that's true. Of course that's true. But that's not all that God was saying. He wasn't saying the blessing was purely limited to the coming of Christ, the coming of a Messiah at some point. Because the blessing was lived out. You, one, you don't need a whole nation to do that. You don't need a whole nation to bring forth one person. The nation that God was calling out it was there to be a blessing to the world before Christ came in time. And God built it into the covenant of Abraham for the purpose of the future kingdom. They needed to bless the world. It's not just there. He codifies it in law later on, but we'll take just briefly looking at Exodus. God says, you have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the people's although the whole earth is mine and you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. You see it there too. He says, I've called you out. All of earth is God's. He could pick anyone, but he picks this people at this time and he says, you will be my kingdom of priests, which is not the last time that we're gonna hear that to describe the people of God, not even just of Israel. We hear that in the New Testament about the church. You will be my kingdom of priests. What does a priest do? What's a priest for? A priest pleads on the behalf of the people around them. A priest offers sacrifices for the sake of others. A priest intercedes for the crowd. And if you haven't thought of it, if you're in the kingdom of God, you are one. You are a priest in the kingdom of God. From Leviticus 23, the priest will present the lambs with the bread of first fruits as a presentation offering before the Lord. The bread and the two lambs will be holy to the Lord for the priest. And on that same day, you are to make a proclamation and to hold a sacred assembly. You are not to do any daily work. This is to be a permanent statute wherever you live throughout your generations. And listen here, when you reap the harvest of your land, you are not to reap all the way to the edge of your field or to gather all the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the resident alien. I am the Lord your God. When Israel was formed, it's built into their law that even in their just standard existence of the offerings that they bring to the Lord, they are to leave enough aside for the alien and the sojourner in their land to just be able to pick from the leftovers of their field. The act of sacrificing to the Lord was always intermingled with compassion for the nations around them. 
Give to the Lord what is his and leave enough of the harvest for whoever needs it. And that one principle alone is challenging enough that we could spend a lot of time on it if we really had a lot of time. Uh, But it applies to how we manage our wealth, how we manage our time, how we manage our resources. Do we leave enough so that we still have the ability to bless others or do we operate while maxed out continually? We can distill all of God's desire for his kingdom um, into the excellent summary he gave us in Micah 6.8. What has the Lord required of us but to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with our God? All of these things, to act justly, to seek what is just and what is good. Israel, understandably, failed at this, which is no surprise. We would have failed at it too. God had to exile them as a nation. Again, not enough time to get there, but if you want to listen to eight other sermons about it, there's a series online that you can find. But uh, the Lord's command to them, even after they were exiled, beyond the continued call for repentance to return and reestablish the kingdom, was this, Jeremiah 29, 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper or other translations render it, if it thrives, you too will thrive, which is the name of our adoptive and and orphan care ministry here at Redeemer, thrive for that reason, for this verse, because we desire to plead for the Lord on behalf of the city where we are so that it will thrive and we will thrive. Well, guess what? You're not a member of a corporate kingdom like Israel is anymore. So this command, be the kingdom of God, where you are. Take the rules of the kingdom that God's already established and apply them to the way that you live every day, even when you're living as foreigners in a strange land. And that is any Christian living right now in our country, to some level you are a foreigner in a strange land as you preach the good news and gospel of the kingdom of God. Of course, that even when it's that simple, it's, we still fail at it, right? Even when Jesus had to take all of the law and sum it just into love your neighbor as yourself and love God, have no other gods before him, that's still a real challenge, isn't it? We love ourselves first and then whenever we have any time left for someone or something left over, that's when we go to other people. And then if we can think after we've served other people, uh, if we have any leftover mental energy to think about God and what he has done, then we go to God and we say, thank you, God. But our hearts are at their best. We flitter in and out of faithfulness, right? At our best, we are a mostly extinguished candle on our own. So then it was then, at the time in Israel's history, when the kingdom was scattered, that God decided to send the ultimate example of the kingdom of God, which was the king himself. So this is the center of the kingdom. This is our example in Christ. Our Matthew passage uses this language that we are to inherit a kingdom prepared for us before the foundation of the world. It's e- when you read stuff like that in scripture, it's easy that that can just fly over your head and you go, that just sounds like fun, fun speak. I don't know what that means. What it means at least, I don't know all of what it means either, but what it means at least is that even the kingdom of Israel, even the kingdom God has tried to call out from the earth, it is at best a shadow or an echo of a kingdom that existed from the foundations of the world. There already was a kingdom and there already was a king 
And God has been trying to communicate the ethics of that kingdom to the world in different ways through different people at different times. But there was a king already from the foundation of the world. And when Jesus comes as a, as a king on earth, even though that is not what we knew him as at first, then Jesus is trying to show us most clearly what that kingdom would look like. When he came and began his public ministry, right out of the gate, this is a very particular language in Mark's gospel. This is Mark 1.15, which you don't have to know much about Mark to know that that's at the beginning of it. Mark 1.15, Jesus is baptized. What is the first thing Jesus says after being baptized? He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is what? what? At hand. Repent and believe the gospel. First sermon from, from the baptized uh, Jesus. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And then not long after, we pick it up in Matthew's narrative. Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and what? Proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction. And that pesky word kingdom keeps showing up again and again and again in Jesus's ministry. This is just the beginning, and you can already see that the kingdom of God that Jesus is manifesting on the earth begins with repentance, gospel proclamation, and then mercy in the form of healing every disease and affliction of the people that come to him. And we say sometimes, I think we talk about the miracles and we know that the miracles are there, to, they were there to establish the authority and power of Jesus. And that's true. But if Jesus wanted to just do miracles like make rocks float, he could have done that too. That also would have established the authority and power of Jesus. However, it would not have had nearly the same picture that healing everybody that comes to you has. Christ is living out the promise, believe it or not, that he himself gave to Abraham. He made the promise. Through you, you will be a blessing to everyone. And then in some weird, loopy time warp, Jesus is the blessing that is born to Abraham's line that will become the blessing to everyone. He is living out the promise that he made and blessing the entire world. Another way to put it, Christ is modeling for us kindly what it looks like to live as a sojourner in a hostile land and to manifest the kingdom of God in his actions. And he does this over and over. Uh, the feeding of the 5,000 is one that you probably know, which is, uh, it's interesting to forget in the feeding of the 5,000, we learn at the beginning of that narrative, Jesus was going to, he was trying to separate himself. He was trying to go to a quiet place and then 5,000 plus some then find out where he is and then they go to him and he's, and he's motivated by compassion for them. He sees the crowd and he has compassion and then he goes and then he prepares for, prepares for them a giant meal miraculously provided. And I don't know about you, but I think there's not a time that I am, the, uh, I am less compassionate than when I am trying to seek time by myself and then people show up. And you go, could you not tell from the body language that I am not trying to talk to anybody right now? And yet still, Jesus is going to be by himself, probably to pray, probably to do something good. I don't know exactly what, but he's probably seeking time by himself to do what he often does when he's by himself and pray and seek the Father's will. He is interrupted. He is motivated by compassion to get out of his, his time by himself and go to the people and make a supernatural meal for everyone. And then as he drives out demons, 
He's showing the power of God to the world. Here's some more text, and I'm sorry, there's a lot of scripture references here, so I hope, I buckle up. But um, Matthew 12, 28, it is by the, if it is by the spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That's another one where he's saying, if you see the spirit at work driving out demons, what does that mean? The kingdom of God is there. That's where it is. He also gives a rare direct answer to the, to the a question that the Pharisees pose them when they say, when's the kingdom of God going to come? And he answers them. In Luke, he says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answers them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Those two scriptures, what they're telling us, Jesus is saying, do you see where the power of God is? Do you see where the will of God is being done? That's the kingdom of God. Don't look for borders. Jesus did not come just to put a flag up somewhere. He is not interested in occupying just a nation with natural borders and walls like everywhere else. The kingdom of God is where the will of God is done. The kingdom of God is where the work of God is done. And then he says in a, in a what was surely difficult, he says, therefore I tell you the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits in Matthew 21, 43, which is to say that he's saying, you know how I know the kingdom of God isn't with you right now? Because there's no fruit in bearing with repentance of the kingdom of God in you right now. So it's going to be given to people who bear that kind of fruit. The main point is this. Jesus, when he was here on earth, was showing us that the kingdom of God is no longer a matter of borders or geography. It's not a specific people group. The kingdom of God exists where the will of God is done and where the spirit of God moves. You wanna find entry into the kingdom? Look for where the will of God is being done. Well, where is the will of God being done? You wanna understand where the spirit of God is active and working? Look at the same fruits of compassion and blessing that Jesus modeled for us and taught us about. Where the poor and the needy are shown compassion and given the hope of joy and rest in the mercy of God. Or specifically from this text today, look to Jesus. Jesus already came to earth as somebody, as a, as a poor Jewish man 2,000 years ago. We know that he had nothing that we should esteem him, right? We're told that. But he tells us in Matthew 25, even more, which is beyond just looking at him as just a regular Jewish man, he also says, you know where I am? Every time you see somebody that's poor and destitute, every time you see someone that's poor or sick or imprisoned or needy, the people that make us the most uncomfortable, he says, any time you've done something for one of them, you've done it for me. So he has already lowered himself to that point. Look to those. That's where the work of God can be done, in those, in the people that need it most. And I know that's difficult. So often we, we take the comfort of God that he has given us, right? And he has shown us such great love and such great mercy. And then it's just easy just to, just to rest in that and sit in that. And there are time periods where that is excellent. But Jesus keeps saying, look to the people who need it. Whatever you do for them, you do for me. 
And of course, he sums this up in the single greatest point. If you still can't see where Jesus is, if you still can't see where his actions are, look at the line of Roman crosses. They conveniently marked it for us. It's the one that says King of the Jews. And then several feet below it, there's a crucified man who is not just King of the Jews, but King of us. And they meant it as a sarcastic joke. But the kingdom of God leads through a cross. It leads through the bearing of burdens. Burdens that we could not bear, but Christ did. And it commands us to bless a world that is darkened in its understanding and in need of great mercy. And it's because of that cross, Paul tells us that Christ has delivered us out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his marvelous light and his beloved son. Which brings us to our last point, the branches of the kingdom. And again, the the Lord has used this term before as a kingdom grows and rises and becomes strong, its branches grow grow out and provide fruit and blessing to to the other nations of the world even. Uh, It's kind of funny, we're at a point, normally at the point of the sermon, you're not supposed to ramp up the cross at the midway point of the sermon because that's supposed to be your your closer. But uh, the only time it's not is when you're actually looking towards the final glorification of the Lord, which is what we're looking towards right now. Where do you go from the worship of Christ on the cross? The only place Calvary takes you is to the glory of the people of, of, of God when the people of the Lord see him again and bring all things to completion. They asked when the kingdom was coming. That's what his disciples asked. When is the kingdom coming? And Jesus told them what? To wait for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our seal and promise that the kingdom will in fact come and also that we are entrusted to help bring it to completion. He gives it to us so that we can be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So why does the Lord tarry? Because we know, right, he's already satisfied once and for all the wrath of God on the cross. So today, why are we here? What is the church doing? From scripture, we can infer that the majority of the disciples also believed that the the return of Christ was imminent. A few years, maybe a few decades at most, but they probably did not at the time of his ascendance into heaven say, that it was going to be past the end of their lives, past several hundred more years to the point where we are now. By virtue of the fact that we are here though, we think it hasn't happened yet. So the question before us, church, do we long for Christ's return? Do we believe that Christ's return would satisfy our greatest desires? I can tell you, I don't know when he's coming back. If I did, permission to leave. People have tried that before. It doesn't go out well for them if anyone tries to give you a date on when Jesus is coming back. I can't offer, though, the same conditions that he himself offered. The clearest thing that we can find in scripture is this, Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's one the gospel of the kingdom of the Lord goes out to all nations. It's a chief contingent upon the Lord's return. If you want to accelerate the Lord's return, then we accelerate the gospel of the kingdom of God going out to all nations. That's one of the ways. 
Once it's proclaimed everywhere, I think it's not a far conclusion to jump to that that is not only limited just to the words of Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Of course, we're preaching the gospel to those nations, but it's also where the kingdom of God is made most manifest in those nations in all other ways, which is that the people of God are there blessing those around them. That's also how that plays out. It plays out through the proclamation of the word. It also plays out through the mercy of Christians in those places. It plays out in the way that we care for the sick, the hungry, the needy, the orphan, the destitute. Why? 1 Corinthians 4.20, because the kingdom of God does not consist only in talk, but in power. Or, you know this one, Matthew 6, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We already know that the Lord's will is perfectly done in heaven, right? What, what he wants to happen, happens. And the things that grieve him never happen. So how do we make sure that the Lord's will is done on earth? It's that same thing. We as members of the kingdom of God, as emissaries of the kingdom of God, affect the Lord's will in our lives and the way that we live. We make the kingdom present on the earth until the Lord comes to bring it to completion. The entire global church, the body of Christ, moving in the power of, of the Spirit of God as the witness of God is practice for the future kingdom of God when he comes back. That is what we do. That is why we go out. Every Christian is an emissary for the kingdom, an ambassador of light working in tandem with the Holy Spirit. That's part of why you have it. For the same way that anywhere Christ went, the kingdom was, when you have the Holy Spirit, anywhere you go and are acting in God's will, the kingdom is and you manifest the kingdom. Your home, Christian, if you didn't know it, if you are in Christ, your home is an embassy for the kingdom of God. Everybody that passes through it is either a fellow member of that kingdom with you or somebody that needs the news of that kingdom. Those are our categories. That's what we work in. So I can't, I can't answer for all of the difficulties of, of the tragedies that continue and move on and, and keep going in the world, why does the Lord tarry? I, only, I know in part why the Lord tarries is this one reason, because the choir risers of heaven are not yet full enough for him. He desires more. He wants more people that will be there to sing in the end what they sing in Revelation. Hallelujah, hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Who is the bride? We are. The church is. How is the bride made ready? By the righteousness that Christ gives us, which we practice by living like Christ on the earth. That's how the bride is made ready. He tarries because he longs for yet more stories of grace and mercy in the lives of his redeemed people because we will be sharing them forever, for millennia to come. That is what our job is, is to share what the Lord has done for us. How the Lord reached out and rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's what we share. And the more astute among you are gonna go, I thought this was supposed to be a, a sermon about adoption. Uh, it is, we'll get there. Well, and I'm gonna say, not every Christian is called to bring children into their home. In fact, there's plenty that we would, we, would, we would caution you and say, maybe not for you. This might not be the way that you're called to serve. But 
Every Christian is called to act as citizens of the kingdom of God to those who are hurting. That's what our citizenship demands. And we are to be driven in God's power to those most in need. And for me personally, I have seen God move in power in this church, in the lives of families who have traded present comfort for unending glory. Like, you wanna talk about the gospel going to all nations. We have in our body of believers, right here in Tomball, Texas, people that hail from Hungary, from Romania, from Ukraine, from Liberia, from China, and Taiwan, all because our brothers and sisters answered the call to the Lord to go not just across national borders, but across the kingdom of God into the domain of darkness and rescue people for the hopes of bringing them back to the kingdom of light. That's why they did it. It's a spiritual kingdom that we are hoping to adopt people into, not just our homes. And I'll also say this, many of those families have endured stress, to say the least, and difficulty. They've made choices uh, that have made their lives much more uncomfortable but I can say to them this, among all those things, when Christ comes and ushers in his kingdom, he can look in them and say, whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me. And that is praise unlike anyone could ever give you, that you have done this for Jesus. And it's not only that, it's because we see that the believers that have walked through suffering in some of the greatest sufferings then become the biggest beacons for God's glory, for the glory of Christ in our lives right now. Like, I don't want to embarrass her, but I, I think if anyone in this church, if I were Satan that I'd be the most nervous about, it would be Debbie Perkle. I'd be the most terrified of Debbie Perkle because he has taken swings at her and she keeps standing like Rocky and saying, I didn't hear no bell <laughs> because the Lord has sustained her. Her story is one of faithfulness to the Lord in the midst of difficulty. And that's just one story. That plays itself out a lot. There are families in the last year that have taken children into their homes and their lives are harder. And they're hard right now. They're, they're temporarily hard and we come alongside them, we counsel them, we show them love, we show them grace. And you know what else we show them? We tell them, the Lord is making you more like himself. The kingdom is more known on this earth now because of what you have done. And that is to God's great glory. So I'll end just with some verses that I think really line this up and then we'll pray and then we'll have a, just a little bit of application. But the Lord sums this up better than I can, so I'll let, him, I'll let him finish. Then comes the end. This is from 1 Corinthians 15. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Daniel 7, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given all dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Revelation, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And John 14, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. 
And on that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we know that we are from day one unworthy of your attention and of your grace. But that, Lord, that you are so kind and so good to us and that you almost revel in that unworthiness, that we will be trophies of your grace, of what you've done for us for ages to come. And I pray that we would not be, as a church, burdened by, the, uh, by things that only you can do. Lord, only you can, only you can bring about salvation. Only you ultimately can come and wipe away every tear. But I pray that we would see in the picture of Christ what is our hope, what is our encouragement. And that we could see that faithfulness sometimes is difficult, but faithfulness is always good. And that at the end of our time, we will look back and say that we have sacrificed nothing that we have not been given so much more of in the kingdom of God. So Lord, incline our hearts to you. Move us toward you, Lord. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Mm -hmm.